it doesn't matter what your business is because you'll be able to start a whole new business with the same group of people and probably be very, very successful. So it comes down to good people, core value, the right vision, and then business strategy around it. Welcome to 7 to 8, our special series on 7 and 8 figure speakers. In this interview series, some of the hottest speakers in the industry who've made over seven figures in a year or less will uncover their twists and turns in their adventures, helping you to avoid the potholes and stick to the fast track. Welcome now to Center Stage, our next guest speaker. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I am super glad that you're here with us today because I am here with my most amazing guest, Isara. Isara, thank you so much for being here with us today. Woohoo! I'm so excited to be here. You're one of my favorite people that I met in this probably about a year back, right? So in this past year, and I, I was expecting this for a very long time. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Not sure what happened in there, but somehow, some way, and now we're together again. So awesome. awesome. So give everybody a highlight of who you are and a quick introduction to your business. Wow. So who I am, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've done multiple very different things in my career, and I'll go through them very quickly because otherwise we'll spend a while here. But I was an F-16 no. pilot, and then I was in training and simulation uh, startup from Israel. That's how I came to the U.S. And then I had my own startup that did to save us a little bit of time. Let's call it affiliate marketing technology. And then I joined a a travel company in which I built a startup for e-commerce travel. And then that company got bought out. I was part of a big, interesting merger. I left that company and then started my own business to do help companies grow awareness and communities around them, leveraging online talk shows. So basically a podcast with a live audience. So that's Fair. a quick recap. of. <laughs> Excellent. And we're going to go through each one of them in, in absolute detail. No, awesome. but let, let's start at the end. How did you get into um, kind of the podcast at, or the TV thing as a thing? Like, how do you, how do you pick that as, Hey, that's the thing I want to do. Uh, by mistake. So <laughs> no, no, really. So I, I said a little bit that my company that I was working for got bought out. We were in this huge merger. That was a very interesting lesson because we were a billion dollar company and a private equity bought us and our two largest competitors that are bigger than us. So the joint company was like a seven, six or $7 billion company. And going through that process with like every consulting company, you know, on the planet and a few you don't know, you know, the Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey's Ernest and Young's of the world was an interesting process. But one of the things I've learned is that I don't like working for corporate. So <laughs> so I quit. And it, it took a while quitting, by the way, because I said I'm quitting. And I said, well, we counted on you to run e-commerce. And so it took a while for me to help them set up what they wanted to set up and find a replacement for me and then leave. So it was a nine months long notice to me resigning, <laughs> but, but I did. And I, and I did without having a plan B. Like I just knew I wasn't happy there and I wanted to leave. And, and before that I was running a pretty big operation. I was running a hundred million dollar travel e-commerce thing. And, and now I had nothing and, and I was missing the business interaction, like talking to business people. And I was listening to business podcasts and in my head, I'm like, ooh, all these podcast hosts get to talk to a lot of interesting business people. So 
why not start my own podcast? So that's what led me to start the podcast. It was literally out of boredom and need to talk to interesting business people like you. And at the end, what happened was I had, I don't know, six or seven episodes, something like this, all of them with people I obviously know at least pretty well. And I was feeling like an idiot because I was telling to myself, if you want to be a real podcaster, you got to interview people you don't know. Like you got to go beyond your inner circle. <laughs> and at the same time, I was listening to a TED talk with a brilliant and amazing guy called Isaac Litsky. And he has an incredible life story and an incredible entrepreneurial story. And I'm like, oh, I want to interview this guy. He's going to be my first quote unquote real guest. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn and he said, yes, absolutely. How do we schedule this? And, you know, my first reaction was, yes, like he's a big deal. He was on TED and no offense to anybody on TEDx. I wish I'll be on TEDx, but like the real TED, once a year invitation only kind of TED. And and obviously he, then I've learned he spoke on any big stage night show, kind of like on the planet, gets paid a lot of money to speak on these stages. And he said yes to me. I had seven episodes. My wife and siblings was listening to the show every now and then. (laughs) Why? the hell did he say yes it really troubled me i was i was amazed by by what just happened and i'm like what can i do from a business reach perspective access perspective with what i just found out for me it was pure gold because again before that i was running a 100 million dollar travel company and there was a long list of people who didn't want to meet with me because it was not important enough and i'm a nobody a nobody and a person who's a big deal speaker says yes to meet with me. And so I started researching. I was starting, and obviously the first thing, like, oh, this is amazing. I just found, you know, plutonium by mistake. And then you're saying, well, I'm sure other people figure this out, right? People have been podcasting for a decade. Uh, Somebody figured this out. So I was looking for people who figured out how to leverage podcasting to grow businesses. And I found more than a few. And I interviewed them to my podcast and I had myself interviewed on their podcast and so on. And kind of like trying to pick ideas and putting the puzzle together. One of those people ended up being my business partner. So this is how it all happened. So that's a very long way to answer your simple question. (laughs) That's an awesome answer. And it also depends on who happens to be in your inner circle of friends, because, you know, it just depends on who you hang out with. The rest of us are trying to get into that circle. It's it's okay to start there. We're we're good with that. <laughs> no, no, it, it it's awesome. I'm not against starting with your with your people that are in your inner circle. I just thought, right. you know, you kind of feel again, no offense to anybody it. that's podcasting. I felt not like a real podcaster because all I'm interviewing is people that I know on first name basis. <laughs> and I think that's an adorable way to consider yourself the differentiator between a, a real podcaster, air quotes, and <laughs> not a real one. It's like, um, do you have it published? You're a podcaster. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. That's like saying a, a real runner versus just a, you know, a hobbyist runner. It's like, do you run? <laughs> You're a runner. <laughs> so, awesome. I, I, you got a point. You got a point. <laughs> awesome. So now, well, in your interviews and now in your shows, what kind of, where are you going with it? What do you, where do you take it? What do you do with it? So actually, you're raising an interesting point. So my show has been running for three years now. And through these years, I've been interviewing mostly, well, it shifted as well. So in the beginning, it was pretty random. Again, I was doing this just for fun. And then it became more and more 
the audience I want to serve are CEOs, senior leadership in mid-sized companies. So a lot of the guests are around that. So in the beginning, I was probably catering more to solar entrepreneur, like solopreneur people who are looking for different gimmicks and tricks and systems and 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 stuff like that. And later on, it became a lot more on business strategy and leadership and people with real experience in running companies. So that's from from that perspective. From my current situation, I'm really, really excited by the, by the whole AI thing. And you're getting a first scoop. You're the first person out of my inner circle that knows this. I'm going to start a second podcast that's going to be about AI for business people. So not the tech side of it, but applications and implications of using AI to grow businesses. And I already have a list of people that I want to interview and the topics I want to talk about and all these kind of things. So that's where I'm at right now. The Business Growth Accelerator, my podcast that I've been running for three years, uh, may or may not survive this. I don't know yet. I hope it will, but I've never tried running two podcasts in parallel. So, And and I really like this. I really enjoy, like I said, I, I still do very much enjoy having and interviewing people who are way smarter than me, who has built really successful companies in different niches, who have specific views and concepts on how to grow businesses. So I'm I'm hoping I'll be able to do both in parallel, but that's these are going to be two very, very different kind of things. I love it. That sounds fascinating and fantastic. So let's talk about this show for now and we'll, <laughs> and we'll, we'll sure. have you on again when awesome. you start the other one. Um, yeah. Cause I am fascinated to know kind of what the differences are to you. Like I totally get that entrepreneurs tend to be like, how do I make this better, bigger, better, faster kind of thing. And that's what they're looking for. Whereas in leadership, they, um, what are I going to call it? C-suites. They tend to be looking for how do we make the company bigger, better. Um, and I, I want to get your perspective on the differences and kind of what do you think makes them work and what do you think contributes to their success? That was like, mm. you can go on for six years on those two questions. Alone. <laughs> Probably at least. Are we doing like a whole series now or is it just one question? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's here's both my personal take on this after running several companies, as well as interviewing by now probably over a hundred different successful CEOs. I think it all starts with good people and good strategy, right? This is the core of everything. And let's break this down a little deeper. What do I mean by good people? If you have the right core values, and the right intentions in mind, and you can surround yourself with people who believe in the same things. So the same core values and the same vision that you're trying to chase. And you surround yourself with people who are smarter and better than you in every way you can, which a lot of CEOs or, or leaders are terrified of, of getting people that are better than them, because then why do they need me, right? That's in some people's mind, that's the situation where in reality, if you build a very strong team, everybody elevates everybody else and the business you're in will be less relevant. What I mean by that is if you have a group of really talented, smart, and good people, when I say good people as personality-wise, you'll be able to pivot your business to completely different things and still be successful if you have the right, and now I'm stealing from Jim Collins, uh, the right people in the right seats on the bus, right? If you have somebody who's amazing in tech, somebody who's amazing in HR, somebody who's amazing in strategy, somebody who's amazing in marketing, 
it doesn't matter what your business is because you'll be able to start a whole new business with the same group of people and probably be very, very successful. So it comes down to good people, core value, the right vision, and then business strategy around it. And business strategy has to do with two sides that some people do one really well and some people do the other very well and very few people do both very well. One is the setup of the strategy, understanding of market, of human psychology, where things are going, trends, tech, all these things, and saying, this is where we're trying to be in five years. Why? Because these are the benefits we'll have in this market, in this niche, in this economical situation, and so on. That's the first half. The second half is how do you actually implement that strategy? How do you take that vision, that concept, that idea, and turn it into daily tasks that people have to execute in order to get to where you're trying to go? And it's both are equally important because if you don't have the first one, well, you don't really know where you're going, where you're aiming, but there's more than a few companies who have a great vision and just don't know how to execute on it. And that part is probably easier to teach, maybe not as easy to implement, meaning there's very clear systems and processes and things you need to follow to execute on a strategy. And there's many consulting companies and many consultants and many books that will teach you how to do that, but you still have to implement it within a business. And if it's an existing business, if it's a company that's currently running, and by the way, this could be, people think of me like, oh, he's talking about you know big companies. This could be a company of five, right? If you have the right systems and processes and you know how to tie your long-term goals into short-term goals, into weekly tasks, into daily tasks, now you'll, your company will move in the right direction to achieve the long-term goals. So that's my two cents. Absolutely. And I find that there are people that are specifically qualified to be able to take one person's ideas, turn them into somebody else's task. It's like, that is a role unto itself to be able to pull around the, the CEO and, and, and take those ideas. Well, and, and, and it's funny that you mentioned that, it's that the CEOs tend to be, or C-suites are kind of intimidated by hiring smarter people when that's an entrepreneur's wet fantasy is to be able to hire people that are better than them and going, yeah, I just wish I had the money to be able to afford to do that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Do that? absolutely. So talk to me about that skill set, though, that skill trade, because I know a lot of entrepreneurs think that it's too expensive to hire people that are better than them because they want, you know, a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand uh, dollar salary. And it's like, dude, that's not gonna happen, but thanks for coming out. So talk to me about that. So it's it's tricky, right? And it's not easy to do. And I'll say two things that one, I'm actually again stealing from somebody I interviewed because I really loved her story, which is look at your optimal org chart. So think about, let's say you have a, let's say you're even a solopreneur. So you're everything, right? You're marketing, you're sales, you're HR, you're, you're whatever, right? Uh, the operations, everything's you. Or if you have a small team and you look at it and saying, what things I'm not good at or what things I don't like doing, both are equally important. What do I, what skill set and what salary do I need to pay to somebody to relieve me or whoever else from the team 
from those things. So either me or that or those other people can focus on the specific things that that I want them to focus on, right? So mark it on the board, create an org chart, an actual org chart and say, I need head of operation or I need a marketing person or I need somebody to do sales that is not me. It, it doesn't matter what it is and put a number next to it. Or all of the above. <laughs> or all of the above. But then rank them by the order of either pain or opportunity, right? It doesn't matter. It's either one way or the other. And as soon as you hit that mark, hire that person. So yeah, it, it may not be a $500,000 a year person. It may be a $65,000 a year person. But that $65,000 a year person will relieve you from doing something you're not good at, that you don't like doing, and that you're not doing effectively because of these two things, which means they'll do it much better, which means the next year the company will grow much faster, which means then you can take another box and remove something else. And then the whole machine starts running faster and faster. And the mistake that people do, and I get it, right? Sometimes you got to pay the bills. But the mistake that people do is like, oh my God, yes, next year I can make $100,000 when this year I make $60,000. And you can multiply that in whatever number you want, right? Next year I can make $300,000 when this year I made $200,000. The reality is if you take that money to yourself beyond your actual needs, and I understand, again, there's, there's, there's a mortgage and there's kids' activities and there's food to put on the table. But once you get these ticks in the boxes and you can spend $50,000 next year to buy a nicer car or spend it on a better salesperson, that means next year you make double your sales, which will, again, not allow you to take more money, but will allow you to hire two more operations people, one customer service, and one person to do better marketing. You'll then eventually get to the point that you don't add $20,000 or $200,000 to your salary, but you're starting to take home half a million dollar, a million dollar a year home three years down the line. Where if you do it the other way around, you won't. You will keep on making small incremental steps, working yourself to death and potentially your other employees as well. So the trick is to identify opportunities where you can relieve yourself of other people in the company from stuff that they're not doing effectively and make a bet, right? You're making a bet because you're saying, I, I can make another $50,000 this year, which would be really nice, or I can hire this person and then next year, I might be able to take another $150,000 home because now I'm running a better, more successful, faster growing company. So that's option number one. Option number two, which is perfectly fine, is to sell the dream. If you can sell the dream either to a person or to an investor, either way, you make it win, right? So if you can come to a person that currently makes $300,000 a year and you say, listen, you are the person. The idea that I have is exceptional and I need somebody like you to make it worth $3 million next year or in three years. And I will give you 10% of the company or I will give you 20% of the income beyond what I'm making right now. And you'll be able to make $450,000 two years down the road, uh, but you'll have to come down to 100 this year. Sell the dream. Option number two is sell the dream to an investor saying, here's where this can be in three years. And I need half a million dollars, a million dollars, $2 million to get there. If your dream is realistic, if it's tied to actual benchmarks and KPIs and things you can prove, somebody will write you the check. Now you can afford the $300,000 person. May or may not be the right investment, but, but you'll be able to afford it. So 
these are the three paths that you can do it. One is more of a slower, self-sustained, cash flow-based concept. The other is promising people percentages of the success. And the third is just convincing somebody to write you the check so you can afford all the fancy stuff. So, and, and all of them are legitimate, right? It just depends on how much risk you're willing to take, how good your plan is, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. And do you have any recommendations for people as to whom they should be investing in kind of first, or is there a priority to it, or is it just based on where their business is and what they're doing? I think it's very specific to the to the business of the person, right? Because like I said, first, it depends on what does the business need the most right now? And the other thing is, what do I what am I not good at? And again, me or the existing team, right? So what is the existing team not good at that will make the most amount of difference in business success? So for some people, it's operations. We suck at operation. Like we get a lot of, in, <laughs> we get a lot of orders or booking or whatever, but we can't deliver enough. So you need somebody to run your operations better. For some people, it's marketing. Like we, well, we don't have any leads. We have a great product. Nobody knows we exist. So every, every business will, will be different. Very cool. And like it. And, and I find that it's um, there. There's also a conundrum with outsourcing. You know, hiring out a team to be able to do something versus bringing them in house. I find that that doesn't usually happen until somebody's at a certain level. Like everything almost is out. out either you have a BA and everything's outsourced, or everything's outsourced <laughs> until yeah. you get to a certain point. And then it's like, oh, maybe we should do that in house. I, I think it depends on the on the type of company. I'm. After using, you know, uh, offshore employees, and they were our, I mean, they were our employees. I did not hire them through an agency or something like that, but they were overseas in mostly the Philippines, but not only. I can say that's an amazing way to grow a company because some of the tasks can be offloaded to people who are extremely smart and capable that get paid four to seven dollars an hour, which means. Five hundred to a thousand dollars a month, and they're really good at what they do. So, it's definitely a path. And thank you for raising that point for you to find help in stuff that you don't do very well, without having to commit to a two hundred thousand dollar a year salary for somebody. Mm -hmm. um, so, definitely another avenue that people should consider. Absolutely, and by the way, in any yeah. size of business. Because again, people who have a bigger business saying, well, we have the money, we have the cash flow, I'm going to hire here. Like, why? If you can get a great person to do these 20 tasks and these 20 people are going to cost you $20,000 a month instead of one person costing you that amount of money, why won't you do that? Right. And I, I find that international companies are much quicker to do that because they're like, oh, we, we want an office you know, over here. So we're going to hire yeah, people yeah, yeah. over there and say. Oh, that was awesome. We're going to hire everybody from over there <laughs> and they can do the work from over here too. Uh, totally. And, but I, I'm thinking that uh, with the, the lockdown that everybody kind of realized that you can go anywhere and do anything from anywhere and it, it changed the game substantially. So hopefully for all our entrepreneurs listening that they can get the support they need a lot faster, easier than they thought they could. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. So what would you say is your favorite part of your business right now? Wow. So two things. First of all, I left the business. So now I'm doing something on my own that is 
to be defined. I'm I'm still <laughs> I'm still doing what I did before. I'm doing yep. this on a smaller footprint with just a few selected companies. Uh, and like I said, what what I do is I help companies grow through relationship building, which is unique. It's not a lot of people do that. I mean, people know that it's a thing, right? People, especially in the B2B world, people understand that relationships play a very big role in their company's ability to grow. But the way they grow relationships is by hiring more salespeople, which adds a lot of overhead, right? So now you have more salespeople, you need more managers for their salespeople, you pay for more travel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When the reality is you can make better use of your relationship building time, building more relationship in a more effective way, hence growing the business without adding that overhead. So investing a little more in marketing versus investing a lot more in sales, getting to the same outcome. So the delta in, in profitability is incredible. So that's what I really like about the business. I like the business because of two things. One, because it's relationship-based and I really like talking to people and meeting with people and interacting with people. And basing your business growth strategy on that is incredible. And versus, you know, different marketing channels and spend on this and funnels on that and all these kind of things, which are important. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not taking anything away from the importance of having leads and lead capture and nurturing and so on. But knowing how to build better relationships at scale is a much quote unquote sexier and fun way to do this than competing over existing uh market share with other companies. So that's one thing I really like. The other thing that I really like about it is the fact that it's very unique. It's not a lot of companies do this, this service, and not a lot of companies use this concept as a way to grow their B2B business, which means it's, well, now, now there's two sides, two sides to that story. It means on one hand that nobody's looking for this service because they don't know it exists. On the other hand, when they hear about it, they're like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Like we can do these things to grow a community and these are the results that we need to expect. And all we have to do is do these few things every week. Yes, the answer is yes. And so the, the outcome is you can grow relationships at scale, real relationships. So it's not like, oh, now we have all these followers on LinkedIn. That's what, not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual people, actual faces that can see you, meet with you and ask you questions every single week or every other week, depending on the frequency you choose, develop real relationships with people from your ecosystem. So existing clients, prospects, suppliers, et cetera, that can help you grow the business that will be there for you and feel a part of your company's journey because you make them a part of the journey. So these are the two things I'm excited about. Nice. I love it. So when you're talking about that, are you talking about like centers of influence or are you talking about relationships and um, on scale? Like, what do you mean by on scale? So again, think about it. If, if today a company wants to have relationships with hundreds of potential clients, they hire more and more salespeople. So every salesperson now runs 30 accounts, which is now you can really know the people, you know who they are, you know where they're from, you know their needs and so on. And then each five of those people have a director or a manager. And then beyond those, you have directors and then and so on and so forth. And you're growing this really large uh, organizational chart that with one purpose in mind, which is to have a good relationship with as many people as possible, because these people will become good clients. And good clients mean lower acquisition costs, better referrals, life uh, long 
longer time they're going to work with you, which means all of these together attracts, I'll say something that I like saying in the beginning, from a, finan from a financial perspective, a business has three parameters only. And I know now some accountants are going to jump from the roof, but that's the reality of it. If you simplify it, one is average cost of acquisition. How much does it cost you to get in an average client? Two is lifetime value. Each average client, how much money are they worth to you over the lifetime of the service or product you're going to provide to them? And in the middle, there's cost of operation, right? So your cost of operation, assuming it stays roughly the same doing what you're doing, and it's going to grow gradually as the company grows, but let's say it's linearly growing and you can grow clients exponentially, then, then there's the only two parameters you can play with aggressively is lifetime value on one hand and cost of acquisition on the other. And the purpose of marketing specifically, and by the way, anybody else in the organization is to push these, you know, the, the lifetime value up and the cost of acquisition down. If you can find systems, processes, concepts that can do both these things at the same time, you will have a much more profitable business. And the thing that does it the best is good relationships. Because if you have good relationships, people will buy more of your stuff because they trust you and you believe in you and what you do. So that's one aspect of, of lifetime value. They will stay with you longer. That's the other aspect of lifetime value. They will refer people to you. That's cost of acquisition and so on. So if you do this, the other thing that they serve that lowers cost of acquisition is, is uh, social proof, right? So now if you have 50 people, 100 people, 200 people who will vouch for your service, your product, your company, you as a person, and will say, yes, don't think about it twice, a lot easier to get clients. So your cost of acquisition goes down. So really the problem is how do you maximize your relationship building time? Instead of doing the one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to fly to Seattle, I'm going to meet with these three clients, and I'm going to fly to DC, I'm going to meet with these three clients, and then I'm going to have phone conversation with these other 20 clients until the next time I fly out, which is very, very expensive. What if you can provide value to them all the time, not necessarily directly related to your business, but around the topic of your business, and build relationship with them that way? And then you can do this with 300 people at the same time, 200 people at the same time, rather than one, two, or three at the same time. So think of having your own conference every single week. Very cool. So, and that's kind of the system that you're helping them set up is to, instead of um, just guesting on podcasts and getting an audience that way is to actually curate your audience and bring them in. And so, yes. And I think the more interesting step is going from audience to community, yeah. which is a very different thing from several different perspectives. I'll mention two big ones. One is audience is top down. You speak or produce content, people consume it. There's no back and forth. A community is a group of people who have a shared purpose that feel a part of the journey because they participate in the journey. So that's difference number one. Difference number two in a community, there are ties between the people and not just you and the people. So you could still have an audience where you have some kind of a back and forth communication. It's still not going to make it a community. In a community, people help each other and not just the whatever is in the top of that pyramid, right? And so if you can create that, 
it's magical because then again, then people feel they're a part of the journey. They want to help and they want to help each other and they want to help the facilitator of that community being you and your business. Hence, everybody wins. I love it. So how do you get people to create that community? Mm, awesome question. It's it's the million dollar question or the multi-million dollar question, right? And And the trick is to be very intentional about it. So what do I mean by that? First of all, you got to share the stage. So the only big disadvantage of a podcast like we're doing today, and again, I've been podcasting for three years and listening to podcasts for more than that. I have nothing against podcasts. But the only downside of a podcast is that we don't know who's listening and they cannot participate and they cannot ask questions. And every now and then somebody will write you something on LinkedIn or will find you and will ask you or suggest something, but it's not happening on a regular basis. If, you, if we do this live, there will be a live audience. They can ask questions. Now they're a part of the journey. And now it's up to the host to make sure that people feel as part of the journey as much as possible. How do you do that? So there's a whole strategy around how do you make people feel a part of the process? And it has to do with very simple things like having rituals that you do every time that people can geek about and know that they're coming and feel comfortable and make jokes, have nicknames, have private jokes of the group, introduce people to one another, let people from the audience answer some of the questions. So you have a question coming in instead of you facilitating it or your guest facilitating it, you know, Joe, who is from Philadelphia, has a very similar business to you. And I think he'll be the perfect person to answer this and share the stage with people. This creates magic. It's fireworks. Because then what happens, Joe will come back every single week because now he's an expert and everybody considers him an expert. Joe will share the content that you create with him giving an answer, even though it's your content under your umbrella, under your brand and so on. He will share it with everybody he knows because he's the expert of the thing. The other person will share it because now he got to speak to you and the guest and Joe and get an answer to a question he found interesting that probably people he knows find interesting. So you get this ball of energy that everybody wants to be a part of just because it makes them feel good and it makes them provide value to the people around them. And then they share it and then more people come and then they get to share the value and they get to co-create more value. And in general, stop me whenever you want. Like I can do this forever, but I'm good. Okay. So in general, any relationship, any relationship, personal relationship, business relationship, you know, uh, romantic relationships are based on co-creation of value, right? If you stop co-creating value, one side will feel that they're carrying more weight or that they're not getting enough of the relationship. And over time, the relationship will break. So if you do everything I just said, you're constantly co-creating value, which attracts more people, which now will co-create value with you, which will attract more people and so on and so forth. And you're creating basically a community flywheel that drives more and more momentum as you attract more people and do the thing again and again. So that's on a nutshell why this thing works. Nice. I love it. So I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How do they start their journey with you? Uh, well, one thing is listen to my podcast. So the Business Growth Accelerator podcast, It's I talk a lot about these things, but I also interview a lot of, like I said, successful business people who has done at least as much as I did and share their wisdom with, with the audience. So that's one. 
the easiest thing to get a hold of me is LinkedIn. I'm there every single day. So if you, and the other, so I have a weird name. My name is Isar Metis, which means I had to spell and pronounce my name in every place I've been on the planet to every person that I meet, <laughs> most times more than once. The benefit is there's only one Isar Metis on LinkedIn. So if you type I-S-A-R, M-E-I-T-I-S, which is how you spell my name, you will find me on LinkedIn. I respond to everybody. It's me. I don't use chatbots. I love interacting with people and I would gladly answer any question that anybody has. Nice. I love it. And we will, of course, have all your links in the show notes. So peeps, just scroll down, see the link, click it and go and talk. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. So I get to ask you, at what point in life did you know that you were especially kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? Was it just in the last few years here or was it before then? Uh, it's a great question. I don't know the exact answer for that because it, it you know, sometimes life throws curveballs at you and you kind of respond. I had that itch early on because when I left the Air Force, I could have joined, you know, there's a lot of military industry in Israel, which are big corporations that sell, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And they all offered me a job because they're looking for people with professional experience, uh, similar to my career. But I joined a very small tech company that had a few small people and a lot of stuff to do that you can wear different hats and run around like crazy. So I think I had it in me from the beginning, you know, shortly after that, I started my own company. So I, I really think it's part of my, my DNA. It's, I, I didn't know that in the beginning, but now I obviously do. Very cool. I love it. So you've been absolutely awesome. Any last words for our peeps? Absolutely. Uh, go right now to the podcast you're on right now. So Michelle's uh, podcast and give it a five-star review and give it a nice review in writing because she's awesome and it's a lot of hard work and she <laughs> deserves it. And that's it. These are my final words. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. I really enjoyed it. And I, I hope your audience did too. Nice. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Do what you said. Go subscribe to the show. Share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Thank you for listening to 7 to 8. If you're interested in upping your speaking game, be sure to connect with our guests with the links in the show notes and connect with me to see how we can help you get your tech done for you and help your speaking dreams come true.